the one who will reign on the throne of David. And then Jesus makes all of these shocking comments about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And, and many of the disciples, the, the crowd that was following, withdrew. They turn away from him. And then Jesus asked the twelve the rather pathetic question in verse 67, You do not want to go away also, do you? So what we're looking at last week and this week is this difficult problem of spiritual defection of people that say, I'm a follower, and then they aren't following. They fall away. And the overall message that we're looking at is that it that it's persevering faith in both God's Word and in God's Son that is the antidote to spiritual defection. And just a quick review, last week we looked at the fact that persevering faith in God's Word is the antidote to spiritual perfection. And I pointed out five things under that heading. First of all, that there are hard truths in the Bible that we have to submit to even sometimes when you don't like them or maybe you don't understand them, but they are there. Also, to submit to those hard truths, I pointed out, we must be born again, as Jesus points out in verse 63. We must be born of the Spirit. Also, to submit to those hard truths, we often have to go against our, our religious and our cultural backgrounds by confronting certain preconceived ideas. We saw that last time. And to submit to those hard truths, we have to accept that God is sovereign even over evil and unbelief when people turn away. And yet, of course, they're responsible for that. And then the final thing we saw was that when we do submit in faith to the hard truths of God's Word, We gain the foundation for knowledge. And I was looking there at Peter's statement, Lord, we have believed and have come to know. And that believing precedes coming to know in a full and total sense. So this week, our focus is then going to be on how persevering faith in God's Son is the antidote to spiritual defection. But before we get to that point, let me point out that there are many things other than God's Son, um, in which we can put our faith, but all of these other things will fail. Peter asks this haunting question in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? I have often thought about that question when I've encountered difficult situations in life, but before you turn away, from Jesus because of hard truths or difficult circumstances or maybe disappointed expectations, think about where else are you going to go? I I majored in philosophy in college partly because I grew up in a Christian home and I had never heard the other side. And I, I wanted to hear what they had to say and I found out that philosophers have a lot of questions but they almost have zero answers to those hard questions. And the Bible does have those answers. And so we need to ask again, 
Lord, to whom shall I go? And frankly, there aren't a lot of other viable options. Now, one other option that people turn to, but it isn't going to satisfy, is comfortable religion. Comfortable religion will ultimately fail you if you turn to it. And I'm looking here at all of these fair-weather disciples. They could not handle Jesus' comments about eating His flesh and drinking His blood as how they could receive eternal life. And so where did they go? Well, they went back to their Jewish heritage and to their Jewish religion. They went back to what they were comfortable with. Uh, they thought that being descendants, I mean, after all, were born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were good Jews, um, and we follow the Jewish religious rituals, we follow the ceremonies, we seek to follow the Mosaic law, we're good to go with God. And at first they had hoped, of course, Jesus was going to be this Messiah who would usher in this golden age, deliver them from Rome, bring peace and prosperity. And then he starts giving this shocking language about giving his flesh for the life of the world and how you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they just say, you know, we're out of here. And they go back to this religion that they were comfortable with before. Now, it was a comfortable thing for them, but it was spiritually ignorant and really stupid because it ignored their main problem. Their main problem was the reality of their sin before a holy God. And religion can never deal with that. All the good works in the world aren't going to erase the sin problem. They might cover over it a little bit, but they aren't going to take away the fact that we all have sinned and we all have to have our sin atoned for. And religion does not usually convict of sin. Rather, it encourages people, oh, you're good enough. Just try your best, do your best, do good works, and you'll tip the scale and someday it will be okay and you'll be fine and you'll go to heaven. But that's not the truth. Uh, John Owen, Puritan writer in his book, Apostasy from the Gospel, comments on those who turn away from Christ. And he said this, If they had had a true conviction of their need of Christ and had experienced His power in meeting that need, then why do they now forsake Him? A person who has been truly convinced of his need of Christ for forgiveness and salvation, and has as a result received Him by faith, will never forsake Christ. To be truly convinced of our need of Christ, we must first be convinced of the nature, guilt, pollution, power, and punishment of sin, for He came to save us from our sins. So religion isn't going to cut it. That's not going to hold you up on Judgment Day to say, Lord, I was religious. Another thing that people turn to is money and power, but that's ultimately going to fail also if you turn to them. And here I'm looking at Judas. John mentions him twice in these verses, once without name in verse 64, and then by name in verses 70 and 71. And uh, he was one, of course, who not only turned away from Jesus, but he despicably betrayed him. 
Later in John 12, Judas, uh, John says that Judas was the one who kept the money box for the disciples and that he was a thief and he used to steal out of the money box. And uh, I don't know exactly why, but I have a hunch that maybe one reason Judas had become an apostle from his perspective was he saw it as a good career move. You know, I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to reign on the throne of David. He's going to have power. He's going to have finances. And I'm going to be one of his right-hand guys. Man, this is a good move. So he follows Jesus. But then Jesus starts giving this alarming talk about, I'm going to give my flesh for the life of the world. And you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. And then Jesus makes this shocking comment, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross and die to yourself as well. And Judas is thinking, that's not what I signed up for. You know, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up to have power and money. But he finally realized he betrayed Jesus for the measly sum of 30 pieces of silver. He felt remorse. He went through it down and uh, went out and hanged himself. And you know, not everybody that has money and power ends that way, but that's a picture of how money and power will fail everyone who trusts in them because they cannot deliver on the day of judgment. Another thing that uh, will fail, if you turn to it, are education, saving the environment, the arts, sexual pleasure, drugs, and alcohol. They will ultimately fail if you turn to them. Now, maybe you're scratching your head saying, where did he get that list? The answer is in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, because that is the list that Solomon goes through, essentially, and says, I've tried them, and they, and they failed me. You say, well, drugs isn't there. No, true, it's not. But he tried alcohol, and I think the only reason perhaps he didn't try drugs is they didn't know about marijuana back then, but he probably would have been joining the people doing that if he had known about it. But here's his conclusion in Ecclesiastes 2.17, after trying all these things. So I hated life. I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. Now, of course, some of the things Solomon did are legitimate enterprises done in the right perspective and in the right situation. Uh, But none of them provide eternal life. That's the point. They're all futile when it comes to being right before God. So, in other words, it's not wrong to do well in your career and to provide well for your family. It's not wrong to run for public office and then use your influence and power to try to better society. That's a good thing. It's not wrong to help save the environment. Solomon had some experiments in botany and gardens and how to do all of that. And that's a good thing because we're to be stewards of God's creation. It's certainly not wrong to study and to learn as Solomon did and try and better yourself intellectually and understand God's world. But the point is, if you put your faith in any of those things and you're counting on those things to satisfy your soul, 
It's going to evaporate the second you stand before God if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Now, that leads to a question, however. And that is, if everything fails us at death, everything other than Christ, and it does, and if death is 100% certain, and it is, then why in the world does anybody turn away from Christ to all these vain things? And there are many wrong reasons that can lead you to put your faith in things that can, can never save you. I could go on and on, but I'll just list nine of them. For example, one reason you can turn away from Christ to vain things is you don't like some teaching or some commandment in the Bible. That's why these fair-weather disciples turned away from Jesus. Now, they were into following Him when He was a nice man feeding the multitude. But when He started talking about eating His flesh and drinking His blood, they got grossed out and said, we're out of here. That, that's not what we're into. They stumbled too over Jesus' repeated claim in John 6 that He had come down from heaven because that implied He existed before He came to this earth and that implied that He is God, which he is, of course. Uh, they knew him as the son of Joseph and Mary. I think they also objected to Jesus' repeated statements. He makes it in verse 37, again in verse 44, and then again in verse 65, that they could not come to him in their own power unless the Father drew them. See, that offended them. What? You mean I'm not a good Jew? I... I I'm not a Gentile dog. I can come to Jesus if I want to and when I want to. And Jesus said, no, you can't. You're a sinner. And as sinners, you have no power to choose me unless I or the Father draws you. Well, how dare him accuse them of that? But in the same way, we could go on with teachings that are offensive. But there are many who profess to follow Jesus until the Bible confronts something they don't like. And then suddenly they've got to make up a Jesus who doesn't agree with what the Word of God says, who, of course, is a false Jesus, because Jesus affirmed the Word of God. I've encountered many Christians who don't like the fact that God predestined some, and yet not all, to salvation. Boy, that offends them. They want a God who predestines all. I have heard of other Christians, in fact, some of them write books. They don't like hell. I don't like hell either, but it's in the Bible. And they make up a God who's not going to punish everybody in hell. There are others that don't like the Trinity. There are some who don't like the biblical teaching on the role of women or on homosexuality or sexual purity. And so they turn aside from the Savior to making up one that they like, that they can get along with. But those things, of course, can never save. Here's a second reason that people can turn aside from Jesus into things that never save. You stupidly forget the certainty of death so that you're living just for immediate pleasure and gratification in these few uncertain years rather than living for lasting pleasure in light of eternity. See, these people wanted a lifetime supply of bread. If Jesus can feed us, if He can give us peace and prosperity, deliver us from Rome, hey, we're in. But all this other talk 
about denying ourselves and about Him dying to atone for our sin, they weren't so sure about all that. But again, if we start thinking that more stuff and financial security and a bigger portfolio and a better house and all that, if that's the meaning of life, think how vain that is the second we die and we stand before God. Uh, Solomon, he tried it, didn't work. Judas, he tried it, didn't work. Paul says, Demas loved this present world and he forsook me. Come up empty. The third thing, you're frightened by the prospect of rejection or persecution. A lot of people turn aside from Jesus for that reason. The people in the book of Hebrews, they were Jewish in background. They had believed in Jesus, but now things were getting a little tough. They were getting persecuted and they were tempted to go back into Judaism and give up their faith in Christ. I think maybe one reason for Judas's defection here in John 6 and later when he betrays Jesus, he liked to be on the inn with the guys in Jerusalem, the big guys. And he's seen Jesus consistently alienate those religious leaders. And Judas has to make a choice and he thinks, you know, if I betray Jesus, I'll be on the good side of these guys. And Jesus seems to be going nowhere here. So he went and got on the inside with the big ups in Jerusalem, uh, but he lost Christ. The fourth thing, you think that following Jesus will rob you of the good life. There are many young people that they think, well, you know, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give up everything enjoyable and fun, and I'm going to have to start doing all kinds of things that are really dreadful. You know, when I was young, I remember thinking, Wow, if I yield my life to the Lord, He might ask me to go be a missionary in a jungle somewhere. And I don't like mosquitoes, and I don't like bugs and snakes and all that stuff. No thanks. And you, you, you kind of draw back. But then as I thought it through, I thought, wait a minute. If God is a loving and all-knowing Father, and He cares for me, He's not going to do anything for me that isn't for my good. So I better follow Him no matter where he calls me to go. Another reason, you, fall, you allow trials and difficulties to grow into disappointment with Christ. And there are many people like that. Like Judas, they think, well, I'm signing up with Christ for the good life, right? He promised an abundant life. And they don't realize, as I mentioned last time, the abundant life might mean being a, having an abundant life in prison and having your head cut off like John the Baptist experienced. The sixth reason, you get busy with other things that crowd out the most important thing. And boy, that's a danger for all of us. You know, seeking the Lord and spending time with the Lord requires time and effort. And it's just so easy to let other stuff begin to fill your life. TV, computers, um, social networks, computer games, sports, all that stuff. Crowds in, and pretty soon the Lord gets squeezed out. Related to that is the seventh thing, and that is you're too lazy and undisciplined to keep Christ first in your priorities. In 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul tells us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Now, you think about that. Discipline 
necessarily means going against your current present feelings for a higher goal. You know, if you discipline yourself to get in shape, there are many, uh, many a time, I don't feel like exercising, but I have a higher goal, so I do it. Uh, sometimes I don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning, and in fact, that's about every morning, and uh, having a quiet time. But I want to be godly, so I do it, and it's for a higher goal. But the point is, if you just kind of kick back and cruise through life doing what feels good, uh, you'll drift from Christ. So you've got to confront your own laziness and discipline yourself for godliness. An eighth thing, this is very common, you sin. And whenever you sin, your thinking about Christ gets muddled up. See, following Christ, again, is a rational decision that is based on the evidence that we have about Jesus that the apostles have left for us in the New Testament. And it's, you read it, you go, wow, it makes sense. And you want to follow it. Sin is almost always emotional. You give in to lust or greed or selfishness or whatever. And if you don't bail out of that really quickly by repentance, your thinking gets muddled up and you try and cover your tracks and then that leads to more deception and lies and you just get enmeshed in this quicksand of confused thinking. And then the ninth thing is kind of a catch-all thing, and that is you don't grasp the supremacy and the excellence of Jesus Christ. You don't see what Peter says here of, Lord, you're the only one worth following. Where else are you going to go that's going to compare with the glory and the supremacy and the majesty of Jesus? And that leads us to our main point here this morning. And that is that it's persevering faith in God's Son, Jesus. And that is the ultimate antidote to spiritual defection. Notice Peter sums it up in verses 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, of course, if I were going to spend time going over the majesty and excellence and glory of Jesus, we'd be here for many, many, many hours. But I'm just going to limit myself to four things here out of our text. First of all, notice that Jesus Christ alone has words of eternal life. He has words of eternal life. You know, life is so short and so uncertain, and eternity is forever. Uh, I was impressed a couple of weeks ago, that movie star, I didn't even know about him before it happened, but he drove away from some event and his Porsche Carrera hit something and exploded and he and another guy died. And everyone was lamenting, oh, he's so young, 40 years old and he's dead. You know, any of us could be dead today. We are not invincible. And eternity is forever. And Jesus summed it up well in Matthew 16:26 when he said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so think about the shortness of life 
Think about the certainty of death. It's not exactly vague whether we'll all die. It's pretty certain. And think about the reality of eternity, and you won't quickly turn away and defect from Jesus Christ. Secondly, think on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God, as Peter says here. Now, if you have a New King James or a King James Version, it says you are the Christ, the Son of God. That is based on an inferior text, as without going into it, we, we don't have the original of John. We have many manuscripts. The earliest and best manuscripts say you are the Holy One of God, but that's a fairly unusual thing to say about Jesus, and so some early copyist went over to Matthew 16 where Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and put that in the text, but it's almost certainly not original. Uh, the interesting thing is, there's only one other time in the New Testament that anyone says Jesus is the Holy One of God, and uh, that's a demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum who says that. The demons knew Jesus is the Holy One of God. Uh, but in the Old Testament, that phrase is used once of Aaron in Psalm 106, 106.16, uh, it's used of Jesus, your Holy One, who will not undergo corruption of Messiah in Psalm 16.10. And then Isaiah often refers to the Lord as the Holy One of Israel. And I believe that that is behind John's comment here. Leon Morris says, There cannot be the slightest doubt that the title is meant to assign to Jesus the highest possible place. It stresses his consecration and his purity. It sets him with God and not man. Now, you know, your faith is always only as good as its object. You can have all the faith in the world in a faulty airplane, and it won't make that plane fly any better. Faith only depends on the object. On the other hand, you only need a little bit of faith to get on a sound airplane and you'll get where you're going because it's not the faith, it's the object of your faith that matters. Now you have to have faith, of course, to get on. But the point is, if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then all the faith in him in the world is misplaced. Go, eat, drink, be merry, believe in something else if Jesus is not risen from the dead, Paul says. But, if Jesus is who the Bible proclaims Him to be, if He is the Holy One of God, God in human flesh, then it only takes a little bit of faith to get on board. Trust Him. It's not your faith that saves, it's Jesus that saves, but you must trust Him to be on board with Jesus. And uh, if you do that, then you have to persevere, even if He says hard things, even if he takes you through hard times. The third thing to note is that Jesus Christ alone, then, is the omniscient and sovereign God. And John repeatedly emphasizes this in our text. Jesus knew, without them saying a word to him, that these disciples were grumbling. Verse 61. He knew, in verse 64, those who did not believe in Him before they did not believe in Him. 
He knew the ones who would not believe. He knew from the beginning, verse 64, who it was who would betray him. He knew who it was, uh, or he knew in advance that he would give his life on the cross, that he would be uh, raised from the dead, that he would ascend into heaven, as he mentions in verse 51 and again in verse 62. He chose Judas, knowing in advance that Judas was a devil and that he would betray him. And he knew that all whom the Father gave him would come to him. He knew that he would keep them and raise them up at the last day. So he is both sovereign and he is omniscient. Now, if that is so, you might be scratching your head thinking, well, wait a minute. Why then would he choose a guy like Judas to be one of the twelve? And A.W. Pink suggests seven reasons. First of all, choosing Judas furnished an opportunity for Christ to display his perfections. We saw in John 4 that Jesus came to do the Father's will, to accomplish all the work that the Father gave him to do. And that work centers on the cross. And for the cross to happen, there had to be a Judas. And so Jesus chose him. Secondly, it provided an impartial witness to the moral excellency of Christ. Judas later testified in Matthew 27.4, he said, after he had betrayed Jesus, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Thirdly, it gave occasion to uncover the awfulness of sin. I mean, what could be more heinous than to betray a sinless harmless person like Jesus. And yet, there is something of Judas in all of us because of our sin nature. We all could be like Judas were it not for the grace of God. Fourthly, it supplies sinners with a solemn warning because Judas shows us how near a man may come to Christ and yet at the same time be lost. Fifthly, it tells us we may expect to find hypocrites among the followers of Christ. That's often a charge that unbelievers, you know, level. Oh, there's all the hypocrites in the church. The answer is yes, and there's all the hypocrites out of the church too. Uh, We're all by nature hypocrites. It's only by God's grace that we can live lives of integrity. Sixthly, it shows us that the devil is to be expected, or a devil is to be expected among the servants of God. So if those in ministry... Betray Christ. Don't be shocked. Seventh, it affords one more illustration of how radically different are God's thoughts and ways from ours. And then I would just add an eighth reason, as we'll see in John 17. It fulfilled Scripture for Jesus to choose Judas, because there he says, Father, I have not lost any except for the son of perdition. And then he adds, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. Um, so all of these things, the fact that, that Jesus uh, only has words of eternal life, that Jesus is the only one who is the Holy One of God, that Jesus Christ alone is the omniscient and sovereign of the universe, points to this last thing, and that is that Jesus Christ then is far above all others by way of comparison. Lord, to whom shall we go? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Boy, I have. 
you run up against something that's just plain hard. A doctrine in Scripture, something in your personal life, and, and you're just kind of reeling from, wow, this is hard. And then you ask, well, where else can I go? I mean, Jesus Christ is far and above supreme over every other option that I could turn to. He is the only omniscient sovereign of the universe. So, Lord, to whom shall we go? You know, the extent that we are tempted to go to the world or to yield to the flesh or the devil and his temptations shows that we have either forgotten or we're not focusing on, we don't realize the supreme beauty and excellence and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you see Him, everything else just kind of goes, huh? Why would I go to that? Again, quoting John Owen, he said, The whole foundation of all gospel faith rests in the glory of Christ's person and offices. It is this knowledge of Him alone that will make us despise all other things in comparison with Him. And so Jesus is the pearl of great price that a man sold everything he had and bought that pearl. Or Jesus is the treasure that's in the field and the man for loving that treasure went and sold everything he had and he bought that field. I like the way that um, Juan Carlos Ortiz in his book, The Disciple, tells the story of the pearl of great price. He says, a man sees this pearl and he says to the merchant, I want this pearl. How much is it? The seller says, it's very expensive. Well, how much? It's a lot. Well, do you think that I could buy it, the man asks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course, says the merchant. Everyone can buy it. But I thought you said it was very expensive. It is, says the seller. Well, how much? Everything you have. Okay. I'll buy it. Okay, great. What do you have? Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. The seller writes down $10,000. What else do you have? Oh, well, I don't have anything else. Anything in your pocket? He digs out his wallet and looks. Well, yeah, there's $100. He writes down $100. Mine too. What else do you have? Well, that's all. Nothing else. Well, where do you live? Well, in my house. Oh, you have a house. That's mine, thank you. He writes down a house. Well, where do you expect me to sleep? In my camper? Oh, you have a camper. That's mine. He writes down one camper. (laughs) The guy says, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? Sleep in my car? Oh, you have a car? Well, yeah, I got two of them. Two cars. He writes that down. So the guy says, well, wait a minute. Look, you've taken my money. You've taken my house, you've taken my camper, you've taken my cars. Where's my family going to live? Oh, you have a family, do you? Yeah, i got a wife and three kids. They're mine. Oh, and I almost forgot. You too. You're mine. You now belong to me. Now listen, he says, I'm going to allow you to use all of these things for the time being, but just keep in mind... You don't own them. 
I do. And if I ever want any of them back, they're mine to take. That's a pretty good picture of what it means to follow Jesus, isn't it? He's the pearl. How much does it cost? Everything you've got. Everything you've got. And you see, everything in the Christian life depends on Jesus Christ and who he claimed to be. If he is who he claimed to be, then we've got to follow him. If he's not, then yeah, go find someone else. Go find something else to believe in. But it's going to come up empty on Judgment Day. But you see, if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as John is trying to uh, show us in this whole Gospel, or if, as in our text, Jesus alone has words of eternal life, and if Jesus alone is the Holy One of God, and if Jesus alone is the omniscient Sovereign of the universe, then even when He says hard things in His Word, and even when He does hard things in your life, where else are you going to go? Who else are you going to follow? There's nothing that even comes close to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes in a fresh way to the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the power and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ over every other option in life. And I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, if any of them are tempted to turn to stuff or pleasure that is short-lived or, or status, whatever it may be, Lord, that you would show them the vanity of that stuff and the satisfying pleasure of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, if there are any here who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would turn their hearts to Him. And again, show them the utter waste of living for the stuff in this world when death is certain and judgment will follow and only the shed blood of Christ can atone for our sin and that they would flee to the cross that they would trust in Jesus alone. We ask in His name. Amen. We're going to uh, take an offering as we sing this first song. And if you're a visitor...